This is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard MH Chaos. This track is your turn to learn. And let me tell you something. You guys are going to learn this this weekend. The first East Coast show for multiple home front chaos. In Reading, Pennsylvania. With Madball. Dead Before Dishonor. Cruel Hand. Hangman. Our boys MH Chaos. And hesitate. Very excited for this. We sold out the smaller back area. And people really wanted to come to the show. So Chris and Reverb are going to make the inner room a little smaller. And we're going to have a limited capacity. But inside show. Which may sound a little weird. But it's going to be 90 something fucking degrees. And... Instead, we're going to be inside in the air conditioning as opposed to being out in the sun fucking dying. So check it the fuck out. Much love to Anshi and all the boys from MH Chaos. We've been talking about it, but it's finally here. MH Chaos is releasing a CD on Fast Break Records. Seven new tracks. The demo, the splits, all on the CD. You can catch the vinyl from our boy Carter and from Within Records. Very excited. So hoping that you all get to check them out. And there's going to be a lot more from these guys. Talking about shows. Well, we sold out one Knock Loose show. And we've got about 200 tickets out of 550 left. So if you wanted to go to the second show, Sunday, September 12th, at the First Unitarian Church, get your fucking ticket now. Big shout-outs to Year of the Knife, Mind Force, Queensway, All Due Respect, Age of Apocalypse, Raw Life. Saturday, July 3rd at Underground Arts, the first Philly Hardcore show back. It's already outsold the black box. We're in the main room. Another awesome show where we're going to be in the air conditioning party and having a good time. And shit, day before my birthday, great way to get back, see all my friends. Hope you come out. Going forward, we still got to talk about Bob's show. Philly, Unity, Barbecue. 2.5. A million bands. It's two bucks if you're there by 2 p.m. And you see the world-renowned and infamous payback. After that, it's ten bucks. You snooze, you fucking lose. So, get there early, check it the fuck out. We actually have so many show announcements, I can't keep doing this. The whole fucking intro will be a million minutes long. So, needless to say, go to phillyhcshows.com. Much love to all of my friends. 
who are in bands, booking agents, promoters, and even the managers. That's right, even the managers. I'm glad that our world is spinning, sometimes a little too fast, but it's so great to see so many shows getting announced. East Coast, West Coast, doesn't matter. And yo, San Jose, the Bay, Jesus Christ. Gulch, Zababa, Tsunami, get the fuck out of here. That Seeing that video was insane. Much love to all them for making one of the craziest videos I've seen happen. And again, I'm going to tell you, don't sleep on Zababa. Probably my favorite of the West Coast bands that isn't Powerhouse. Absolutely fucking devastating. Seeing them in the front of that crowd was amazing. I love seeing show. I love seeing shows jump off. I love watching people have a good time, and I hope there was tons and tons more as the summer continues with the newest show announcements. And we have plenty of them. Follow us on Philly HC Shows on Instagram, Twitter, and Philly Hardcore Shows on Facebook. And yeah, we've got tons of shit coming up. So fucking be ready for it. I had a different idea who I was going to have as a guest on today's show. And then my friend Chris Wynn hit me up and says, Hey Joe, we're finally going to release In Effect with the same company who printed the hardware fanzine. And I was like, exact words, which we say in the podcast. He's like, I think you said holy shit. My exact words were, holy fucking shit. This is absolutely the best news. And so... Always wanting to promote my friends. Always wanting to promote things that influence me. Chris Wynn would create in effect fanzine after doing one issue with Freddie Alva of New Breed. And then kick off three amazing fanzines for that time. Take a break. Come back strong as shit in the mid early to mid 90s New York hardcore. And just blast a shit ton of zines out by zine standards. And just focus a lot on the queens and bands from that area. And it it was easy to find on South Street in Philadelphia. So I was quickly a fan. And over the years I've got to know Chris decently. His fanzine would stop in the late 90s. But he would start ineffecthardcore.com. In effect, would promote this hardcore as best they can. They showed up, uh, hung out, interviews, the whole nine yards. Something amazing to see someone who started their um, trek in hardcore in their mid to late teens in the early to mid-80s. Still very excited about hardcore in 2021. And so with the book coming out, I wanted to promote my friend and this fanzine that had a heavy impact on and and create a appreciation for all these New York hardcore bands that really don't get the love and respect that I think they might deserve. So let's fucking go. Today we are talking to Chris Wen of In Effect Fanzine. I don't know if you've checked out their website or seen the promotions and all the stuff they've done in the last couple of years with this hardcore, but 
with the amazing announcement of In Effect Fanzine coming out as a book, we had to have Chris on the show and talk to him specifically about In Effect, where it came from and where he came from. So, Chris, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, Joe, thanks for having me. What's going on? How are you tonight? I'm doing great. Uh, I love to hear how things began for you, where you grew up, what was the music in your house, and we'll kind of go from there. All right. Uh, I'm 51 years old now, so I was born in 1970. I grew up in College Point in Queens, New York. Uh, a lot of kids that lived on a dead-end street. It was kind of like a working-class neighborhood. It was like maybe like 30 kids on this dead end street. It's like I can go through the block in my mind's eye and just like see a house and say, that's the name of the family that lived there. Name all the kids that live there. Like the kids are just, everybody was in the street like all day after school. And then there was like maybe like five to eight of us that were started getting into like heavy metal. It started off with like Def Leppard and Ozzy Osbourne, like radio shows at nine o'clock at night would have like top five things. And then like these bands would like, like Ozzy or Def Leppard would like crack into the top five, like beating out like, you know, pop music of the time. I don't know, like let's just say like a Michael Jackson or something like, you know, something like a little bit more mainstream. So we thought like Def Leppard and stuff like that was like crazy. When I heard Ozzy, when I heard the like crazy train, I thought that was like the sickest heaviest, like music can't get heavier than that. But then we start hitting into into after junior high school, get into high school, and then some of the kids started going to uh, to schools like uh, like my high school was Flushing High School, which was like the local high school. But other kids went into high schools where there was more private schools where kids from other parts of Queens went. So we started connecting with kids from Astoria and kids from woodside and they were already into like metal and hardcore and next thing you know they're telling my friends that from my block and we're all like kind of like this is a triangle of these three uh three towns in queens and now we're like kind of like just it went from that Def leopard stuff and then into metallica and venom and slayer and all this stuff and next thing you know hardcore is like coming at us like hard and fast we're going to like matinees and all these crazy shows and did you hear about this show did you hear about that show but uh without the connection with woodside and uh astoria we probably wouldn't have advanced as as quickly as we did so we were like 15 just turning on 16 and you know we're taking like buses and trains to places like lamore and brooklyn which was like you know if you total everything up with buses and trains it was probably like two and a half hours you know we would have to leave at like you know like seven o'clock at night to get there like 9 30 or so and then the reverse commute coming home you know those Lamore shows were like I don't know like the biohazards and overkills of the world those shows would end at like two in the morning it's like we would sit in the subway station down the block from Lamore and it would be like it seemed like over an hour before a subway train would come and you figure in New York City like a like subway comes every 15-20 minutes but I remember sitting there forever and uh then you would get on the train it was like one of those typical kind of like old school New York things where you see like graffiti all over the trains and it's like you're just the only people in the whole subway like the couple of people that you went with and uh it was just like a wild wild ride like in the beginning because we were so young and we didn't realize we just like going into like these things and there's like a lot of crazy shit going on but you know we probably just didn't know that it was uh, you know or care that much that it was that dangerous or it seemed dangerous what was going on around us I feel um, like we grew up the exact same way in so many fucking ways. 
um, from the L trains that like we talk about on the show, like the L train from my first stop was the first stop on the train. By the time we would get downtown, we'd have that car full of people, sometimes two, three cars were the crazy kids and um, the same thing. So uh, what is there any people from hardcore that we might know that you first like ran into when you were mad young and like, who were you uh, initially linking up with that would get you into these uh, from metal to hardcore? Uh, the kids on my block went on and like in my neighborhood went on to start a band called fit of anger. They put oh, out yeah. uh, demos and uh, played a bunch of shows. I remember their first CB shows was open up for gorilla biscuits and like the whole town went, it's like college point where I grew up, like turned into like this, it's not like a lot of bands came out of there, but there were like a lot of fans. And we like, there was another band called Born that was from College Point. Yeah. And uh, well, it's like the kids would show up. Born had a video where they had, uh, they had like a tour bus that they rented, like, you know, or like a, like a party bus or whatever, wherever they were playing, New Jersey or someplace. And they had like a hundred people on the bus. I'm like, where the fuck did you find all these people? You know, you know, people would just go, go. It's guys from College Point. Let's go. It was, it was kind of crazy. But uh, uh, one thing that we, another thing is like we were very outgoing as far as uh, we were on the train. You see anybody that looked like they might be into the music. You would just like, hey, you like hardcore? You know, what, you're going to the show? All right, let's hang out. You know, I met uh, uh, this guy, Paul Arsentalis. He was in a band called Oxblood. Uh, he was just like uh, taking the train at, at the Main Street Flushing Station is like the end of the seven line that goes past uh, the Met Stadium, City Field, Shea Stadium at the time. And uh, we met him and then he introduced us to Freddie Alva, who does New Breed. He did I did a zine with him called New Breed before In Effect. And then uh, he went on to put out the New Breed compilation, that cassette. Uh, now he does zines and books. He did ABC No Rio booking there. He's done a million things. Freddie's like a, a class act that's just done a million things for the scene. But it's like we met him and uh, he kind of like uh, started talking to me and he's like, hey, you want to do a fanzine with me? I'm like, how do you do a fanzine? And uh, we started doing this fanzine. I did one issue with him, a new breed fanzine. It had New York hoods. It had pressure release. It had, I believe, SFA. And killing uh, raw deal, which turned into killing time. And we basically just pulled out demo tapes, like pressure release was this really cool band. There was like some guys from Connecticut, some guys from New York, and they had an address inside the demo. And he's like, do you want to interview pressure release? I'm like, yeah, sure. So I just wrote down some questions on a piece of paper, put it in the envelope. I never met these guys to this day. And I just mailed it to them and uh, answers came back in the mail. And uh, and then he shows me how to do the layout. Like he was using a typewriter. He was like pasting photos to a piece of paper and, uh, you know, stenciling out like where the photo will go, where the band logo will go, and then typing around all the other stuff. Just basically, you know, your typical DIY cut and paste fanzine. So he showed me the ropes. They did a couple of reviews. That guy, Paul, that was in that OI band, Oxblood, he's still, I think they're still around. And uh, he does a tattoo place uh, out in Long Island called Clockwork Tattoos, I believe it's called. Yeah. And uh, so uh, the three of us worked on that first issue. And then uh, from there, it's like, I kind of want to do my own thing. I kind of like, you know, Freddie and I like uh, uh, liked a lot of the same bands, but it's like, he started telling me the bands I think he had lined up for issue two. And it's like, I wasn't really, I was like, I could do all these other demos. There's so many bands with demos out that I love. And I wanted to do like more like my own thing, have more control of what bands were in it and have more of a say in it. So that's when I decided to, 
kind of break away with Freddie and uh, start in effect. Were you cognizant of like guillotine fanzine and some of the older fanzines before you linked up with like Freddie? Was there any kind of um, no, no so not really? Still, so, so Freddie just say, Hey, do you want to do one? Was your first interaction with uh fanzines? Uh, as far as names, uh, no, I can't remember. I don't think I knew guillotine back then. I was like totally like a noob with all that stuff. Uh, as far as the fanzines, maybe bullshit monthly. I knew cause that guy, Mike bullshit from SFA would have like this like double sided paper that he would cram like handwritten information. Like he would have like an interview. He'd have like a, a double sided piece of paper and it would seem like he had like three interviews, 10 show reviews, and a photo and it would say bullshit monthly. And somehow he got it in such a bad, small handwriting onto this like double-sided uh, photocopy piece of paper. And that was his fancy. And it would be like a quarter or, and then I think he, he maybe made it like a two page one or he upped it somehow size wise and it became like 50 cents. And it was like a big deal that it was 50 cents. Uh, but no, I didn't know these names that much, but then when I started going to the shows, um, it was like you would, people would sell the zines and then the, it's like the some records was up the block. I'm not sure if they had fanzines there. I remember I bought a bunch of cassettes there and they always had cool t-shirts. Uh, but there were stores like Bleak or Bob's that would have fanzines and you would just grab anything that had any band that you saw on it. Prior to that, in College Point, you know, the, the local newsstand that was on my, like maybe two blocks from my house, we would go there and just leaf through the metal zines and anything that had anything to do with like a hardcore band like SOD or Anthrax or anything that was uh, attached to hardcore, we would just like investigate it, read it, even, you know, most of the time we would buy them. But sometimes if you knew it was something that only had like a little tiny article, you would just read it real quick and then put it back on the, on the shelf before they would go, hey, you know, stop reading that, buy it. When I think about the time when all these fanzines are coming out and this is like a insane time for New York hardcore. It always comes back to the similar story. Like you said, like a group of kids from either Queens, we've had guys from Yonkers on this show. And it's that moment where the metal scene is the uh, big, big thing that presses people. And then they find hardcore and then hardcore almost completely takes over everything. Would you say that that's what happened to you? That like when you went from metal and found hardcore, you almost got like obsessed, or did you were you still like big in the metal as you were finding all this hardcore stuff out? Oh, absolutely, I fall into that stereotype, probably like you were describing. I was into like Death Angel, I love Dark Angel, Possessed, Slayer, Whiplash. Uh, uh, my first CD's matinee was Dark Angel and Possessed, and I believe Caligula, who had a demo out. I think they were the opening band. I could be wrong. But I remember Larry Lalonde from Possessed ripped his hand up or something in the sound check and he was like bleeding and they had to, they had to rush him to the hospital and he came back and he played with like, like a wrapped up hand. Uh, yeah, I, we, all of us, I remember bands like, like Artillery and Venom. And I remember we had the jackets, everything was painted. We looked like we were totally into metal. And then we found hardcore and it was like, I always hated in metal, I always hated the satanic imagery. I always thought it was corny, like black metal, venom. I hate that cover. I just, I don't know, it was just, it was just kind of like dopey, you know? I would like feel sort of embarrassed, like wearing the stuff with like upside on crosses. Al from Fit of Anger had a possessed seven churches jacket with the upside on cross on it. And I remember 
we were like on a train or something and some guy's like yo possess seven churches and we were like you know i was into it he had he was like all into that but i was always like not into that whole it was like kind of corny and i felt like you know when i would see like the hardcore stuff it was like i'm like these are regular dudes the first cb's matinee i went to new york hoods opened up for agnostic front the next day when i went to work i saw mike from new york hoods a guitar player on the train going to work I was like, holy shit, this is like, you know, prior to this, I was like into, you know, big bands like, you know, Maiden and Priest and Metallica. And here's the guy that I just saw yesterday play a show at CB's. He's on the train with work boots going to work like a regular, like a regular schmo like everybody else. And I thought that was so cool. And then just, you would just see the way the bands were, you know, it's like they were just regular. The, yeah, there were some crazy looking like, you know, tattooed up skinheads just like look like absolute lunatics but if you look at old pictures of most of the shows most of the people are just like regular dudes you know that would be from your block you know that you grew up with you know not again grew up very much very similar long hair hanging in the cemeteries <laughs> not really aware but it was years later so some of the first hardcore videos would uh reach headbangers ball and that was like one of my first glimpses alongside getting a tape and then um just seeing hardcore kind of come up through that early 90s crossover where you start seeing agnostic front and different things pop up in the metal magazines but it was the same thing one minute long hair all in a heavy metal next thing you know hardcore 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 yeah the crossover stuff like the the, uh cause for alarm album like agnostic front ludicrous immaculate deception and uh crumb suckers life of dreams those three tore us away from the metal because it was like it had it was you know hardcore it was metal but it was like different it was like it was more i don't know cool it was not like venom and you know the the ultimate revenge slayer like the you know i don't know it was it was just different i i just drew me towards it and and we all kind of like felt the same way now i'm in a unique scenario because you said you saw a CB's matinee that was all metal and you've seen a CB's matinee that was all hardcore. Was there any real comparisons or contrasts that were different between the two or were the kind of crowds somewhat similar or what was the, was there any differences between the two different kind of shows? Oh, we were like scared shit going to the first what, the dark angel and possessed show. Cause we were like, Oh my God, we're like, you know, cause we were still more metalhead looking and you know, like shirts and stuff. So we were like, you know, and metalheads were, you know, you just assume they just get their asses kicked just for showing up. Like they would just, you know, skinheads would just throw you around and just like get a, give you a beating. Just, you know, that was the assumption. We get there, it's all metalheads. It's like nobody, there wasn't really a big crowd compared to what I would later on see there. So it was like, I remember it being cold out and it was like not that many people, you know, compared to regular shows. I would, I don't know, I don't want to say a, to- a number, but I would say maybe like a really crazy CB show 500 people you know in and around the show and then maybe that show maybe like 150 i would say maybe i remember it was a good show but uh yeah it was totally different and then the the first matinee i went to was agnostic front with new york hoods and that was like we're hanging out it's like you know we're 16 we barely got in with our ids and stuff and there's like you know like grown-ass men you know tattoos looking like crazy pit bulls on leashes and you know it was like, you know, we were young, you know, we were 16 years old and it was, uh, that was like eye opening. Like, you know, it's like, you just kind of like, you just kept your mouth shut 
and just like see how everything goes down and then you know just try to fit in you know and it's like we were into the music we really loved the music and you know i think uh you know, in a way, sometimes people had bad experiences. They would go there and for whatever reason, maybe they opened their mouth or they danced stupid or whatever, or just they just peep, someone just didn't like someone's face. And next thing you know, they're getting jumped. And that, that was an aspect of it too. But uh, luckily for myself and my friends, it's like, you know, I guess we handle ourselves, you know, in a, uh, in a way that, you know, nobody started shit with us. And because, you know, you go down there, it's very intimidating. You know, it's the first time you go to any show in any scene, you know, it doesn't have to be New York. It's like, you know, you can show up to some place and it's like you're 16 years old and it's like, you know, people a lot older than you, they've been around, they all know each other. It's a little intimidating at first. What do you think was one of the hardest cultural changes for you shifting out from metal into the hardcore punk then? Do you think it was like cutting hair and changing the way you look or do you think it's just like adapting to the reality that even though you're at a concert, the crowd has its own kind of like regulatory attitude towards people. Uh, what do you mean? As far as like dressing or like acting or like acting, like there's a, like at a metal show, you kind of could besides like, there's like very few social faux pas in metal couple, but not really where you do the wrong thing in a hardcore show, especially back then someone's going to knock you the fuck out. Yes. Yes. Uh, the metal shows that we went to at Lemoore before that was a much older crowd. So we you know, I would say like the CB's crowds that we were going there, the people were like probably like we're 16, they're probably maybe in like the 19 to 21, 22 age range. And the metalheads at the Lamore shows, they seem to be much older, a lot more drugs also. It's like there were people like passed out everywhere, like, you know, uh, all like just like zoinked out of their brains, you know, and it's like, you know, it, and they seemed a lot older too. And it was uh, a, a younger, more relatable crowd at, at CB's, you know, like, like I said, there were like a lot of you know, crazy looking, you know, skinhead types, tattoos all over the place. But there were a lot more people that you would just see. You'd say you're standing online next to somebody and you're just waiting to get in. And you're like the 72nd person online. And the person right next to you, you have no clue who they are. You just start talking to them. Hey, did you see that such and such has a demo coming out? This is before Internet stuff also. So you're like just like grabbing on. You just want to talk to people about the music and what you know and where you came from, we would just talk to everybody, you know, like on the train again, when we'd go there, when I'd be online waiting to get into a show and then uh, just outside the show, you know, it goes back to that thing where my friends went to different schools. So it's like, we had our little circle of friends from college point that I mentioned, but now I'm meeting my friend, Nick might go, Hey, this is uh, Tom from Woodside. And he, you know, and next thing you know, I'm becoming friends with him. And then Tom knows somebody, it's like it's just this big web and it just grows and grows and you just end up knowing more people and more people. Then uh, what benefited me is like, you know, next thing you know, you start making friendships or talking to people that are in the bands and it just helped me along doing the fanzine. Now, in thinking about the, uh, you also said you were familiar with some records, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was only like two or three blocks of CD. So it's like a band could end you could run up there like very small stores. So you could like be in and out of there in like 10 minutes and just see the whole store. And then you back for the, the next band before they start playing. Yeah. That, that's that place has been mentioned quite a bit on the podcast and different episodes. And it seems like that was like a great place to kind of not only interact with the person Dwayne, but also different people. You constantly were meeting people within the scene in that spot. And did you, was there any like records that you probably wouldn't have checked out 
had you not been familiar with that? Like, I know a lot of people at the time who were finding hardcore from metal were starting to also check out like old English skinhead bands and then also via this, um, checking out different kind of bands that you weren't really familiar with and what you found from some records. Uh, the breakdown demo was the one that was the first band that, uh, the first demo that I bought that was outside of that agnostic front, ludicrous crumb suckers thing, like bands that were signed to like combat core. That was sort of a big label or it is a big label was a big label. So this is like a, a the first like real underground one that I found there. And That's I, yeah. And I, I remember they would have them on the counter and I bought the, the breakdown demo. And I also remember getting the straight ahead, the 12 inch, the, uh, the white one that didn't really have any artwork on it. The uh, I risk records one. And I remember buying that there also. Uh, but the breakdown demo was the first one. And cause they played, I think at the agnostic front show that I went to, there was a flyer for uniform choice and breakdown. And we had like, let's go to that one. And then we got the demo and it, it was just like, it, it was like, it was crazy. Cause it's like, I never had heard of uniform choice or uh, seen them or knew much about them. Like I knew they were a straight edge band from California, but not much else. And uh, bands from out of town, a lot of times, like the, the crowd were all, you know, like walk out and then we would just watch these bands. I remember uniform choice, maybe the crowd would, didn't peel out as much, but there was always like a drop off if it was like the headliner would be an out of town band which was like wrong because we saw bands like uh, Verbal Abuse was, an, was another example. Like, Fuck yeah. I forgot, who, I forgot who they played with, but it's like people walked out and we were watching them. They were amazing. And we were like, why would people walk out on this? It was like, it was, it was like, you know, it was too, it was kind of clickish in that. And it's like, these guys are not from New York. And I was totally not like that. I was just like, you know, it's good music. I don't care where they're from. Now, we talked to Carl Pacara and he had said that the breakdown demo was really popular because of stuff like some records so when they finally got to play that show with uniform choice it ended up being like one of their last shows but also their first cb shows and they were kind of shocked because they played other places so when they got on station played people were like going off so it's awesome to hear that you bought the demo and were like fucking psyched for them that's fucking great man yeah that was a that was a great demo and uh I interviewed in my third issue, I interviewed Jeff and he had put together, it's like after that breakup with Carl and uh, Rich and Drago left, we were split up with Jeff and I had did, done the interview for the third issue uh, outside of CB's. There was like a ho men's homeless shelter, like above CB's. And it was always like, kind of like people asking you for money and like, you know, like just like crazy characters hanging around. So I remember my friend, Nick again from Fit of Anger, had gone across the street to get a beer or rice and beans, whatever that he was getting out of the deli. And he comes back with Jeff Perlin and he's like, this is my friend right here. And he's pointing to Jeff, like you, he needs to interview you. He needs to interview right now. And Jeff was like, okay. So this interview turned out to be Jeff, their friend, Mike, who was just a friend of the band. And like one or two of the band, newer band members, like got drawn into it along with like people that were asking for money to live in their homeless shelter. It was just like this wild interview and my uh, one of my regrets for that interview is i didn't put all the outside comments that were coming from like homeless people or people that lived in that shelter upstairs because it was like just it was chaos it was just like it was like mother jokes and just like all this like it was it was hilarious it was and it was just a totally crazy 
interview and it turned out really funny in the magazine because it's like the things that the band members said was hilarious too. That was like one of my favorite ones. I would, I would go to every show with a camera with a couple rolls of film and a tape recorder and uh, questions in my brain, not always written down, but just in case I run into this band, this is things I should ask them. I'm glad you touched on that because I imagine at that point, there's no way you could write down answers that quick. So you had to rely on something like recording. How much time did that really take when you started really breaking down those interviews and trying to put them to pen? Was there stuff that you left off that like, was there stuff that you missed out on? Was there stuff that would end up not making it into the zine because of the arduous task of uh, transcribing it? Like, no, if it was, if it was information, I would sit there. I would stay up. I would stay up to all hours of the night. Like, you know, I mean, I'm living at home at the time. And when I, when I did the magazine, uh, I started when I was 18 and in 1988 and, you know, I would just say it was like Friday night and, you know, I don't work on, on, uh, Saturday morning. I would just stay up to whatever it's, I would start and I would just finish when it would be done. The only things that would get cut out is like, if there's people walking by and it'll say that's like me and you are interviewing each other. And, uh, and then somebody starts small talk and, you know, then I'll just like, fast forward through the part that and then when we get back to the interview i would just keep transcribing unless it was something like you just couldn't understand i would rewind it over and over and over trying to figure out what they said and sometimes i would have to like piece a sentence together here or there like you know finish the sentence because someone might have gone hey joe you know and so little things like that but everything that i did interview wise was always like to the letter i was very i'm very precise with what's in there and making sure it's the person's exact words. And even today with my website, it's like, if someone you know says something and it doesn't read the right way, I'm like, Hey, are you sure you wanted to say it that way? It's like, it doesn't sound right in a, in a sentence. And they'll, they'll be like, okay, yeah, yeah. This is what I meant to say. And I'm like, how does this sound? And I'll give them like a little edit. And then they'll go, yeah, that's good. Thumbs up for that one. And then you know, basically it was like kind of the same thing like that. So in order, so in order, it went new breed, and then you jumped. Uh, how many issues of new breed total did you do before you jumped into issue one for in effect? I did one issue of new breed with Freddie. And then you were kind of like, hey, I want to take a different path. Like, yeah. what ultimately, then, now, I know later Combat Core would break out to be in effect uh, records, but you were out a little bit before that, correct? Tiny, tiny bit. Uh, I believe uh, we and, both came out within like a year of each other. Um, I was like, I, my first issue had like 50 copies. Uh, you know, so it's like, it was easy to see that, you know, or, or miss me rather, you know what I mean? It's like, I could have been uh, maybe like the third issue, maybe people started even noticing. And I was like in 89 and uh, I've talked to Howie about it and uh, we're totally cool with it. At the time I was like a little ticked because it's like, I knew I had an issue out. I had never heard of in effect records, but maybe they were like in talks, you know, putting it together in boardrooms or whatever they were doing, you know, legalizing stuff. And they had the name and, you know, I don't know. It's like, it, it was a popular term at the time. And, uh, well, that, you know. that's exactly what we're touching on. So one of the coolest things about in effect zine is that every issue has not only their own, I mean, cause it was a short run. It was about 12 issues total. But especially early on, the fucking covers were so busy and it's impossible <laughs> to deny the New York City's um, kind of like melting pot 
of uh, intersectionality between hardcore punk, street graffiti, hip hop in general, and you see it from the very outset. So I imagine, in effect, got its uh, namesake from the hip hop stuff, correct? Or like that being a term like live and in effect or something like that? Yeah, I didn't really think about it. I just, I would hear in effect and people would just say it. I don't know, like people would say word up and stuff. You didn't really think about yeah. it. It's, it's, I don't know. I just like the way it sounded and just. Oh, wait. So, wait, so you're saying is in effect was like a term, like a reply or something? No, no. I just, you know, I would hear like, like you were saying, like the, the reference that you were putting out there. It was more like that. It was like, you know, I liked a lot of hip hop at the time. You know, MTV raps, is, you know, was like a show, you know, we'd watch and listen to it on the radio. You, you would find the hip hop stations, listen to that. And it was said a lot. And I just thought it was like a cool, cool slang at the time cool and it sounded cool i thought it was like in effect fanzine i like that let's let's do, let's go with that you know no, really wasn't much bit. thought to it no but it was a. Uh, it just shows it doesn't date it in a negative way it dates it to like preserve that this is like one of these awesome moments where new york hardcore doesn't get homogenized in one sound and so many of the people that would be involved like yourself had metal influence but respected hip-hop but absolutely obsessed with hardcore enough to record hours of recordings and then painstakingly transcribed them just to photocopy them. And I imagine what was it? Uh, how many issues were you initially doing that were completely photocopied? Uh, the, the first the one first was two the first one was photocopied. And the second one was, I found the printer to do the second one. The first one was big on uh, Chris Bonetto's from uh, fit of anger. Everybody gets hurt. He did the cover of the first one where he did, and he did a lot of the artwork, the graffiti stuff inside there. And he put that whole cover together. Uh, his whole family like helped with that issue. His, his uh, sister gave me the typewriter to use. I didn't have a typewriter. And then his brother, Nick, who's in Cold Front. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, he was the connection in Astoria that knew AJ. He, AJ and him grew up on the same block. JoJo from Outburst and them grew up like, in the same block or within a block of each other. So I was going to him. I was like, hey, if I give you questions, can you get them over to Joe from Outburst, uh, AJ from Leeway, and they'll answer him? He's like, yeah, sure. Just give me the question. So it was kind of like I was doing the same thing where I was mailing the questions to pressure release for the new breed. I was like, I, I didn't really even think about it at first, about going up to them and interviewing them in person. Not at, right, not at that first issue. I just had this idea. I was like, okay, I got Nick to give me the connection to Outburst, Nick to give me the connection to Leeway. And then uh, I had All For One was a, a pretty good demo band from New York. They were from Brooklyn. And I would just run into them at shows. They were cool dudes. So I was like, I don't know if I did the interview in person or if I did it in email, but they were in that first issue. And I can't see the cover in my brain right now. Outburst, Leeway, All For One. Beyond. Beyond. There you go. They were, uh, um, they were in a, a thing where I just put questions in an envelope and mailed it out to them. And uh, they responded. I was like, whoa, you know, it's just another thing. It's like just like a cold, like a cold call, like some, a salesperson does a cold call, just put questions in an envelope, mailed it to the, the address in the demo, and it got mailed back to me. That's how, you know, it, it goes to show you how everybody was really, really into it. You know, could you imagine that today? It's like you can't get people to uh, click, like double click, you know, like let's say you, you want to put something up. You need to put the direct link to the video. You can't put it in an article where they have to click on the article and then click again to get to the video. They just want the video. Now imagine, you know what I mean? Put that in terms of the old way where 
you're writing down, you're thinking of questions, you're writing them down on a piece of paper, you're putting it in an envelope, you're mailing it, then you're getting, the, you know what I mean? All the work that ha- that's there. And then today it's like, you know, with my website, if I don't, if I don't put direct links, sometimes it's like, it just, the, the post that I make about something might just uh, die and not get much traction because it's something as simple. It's like, you know, a double click, it's kind of crazy. I said recently to a friend who didn't really understand what I was talking about when I said about like just how quick information moves. So like a fanzine could interview somebody and it might take weeks or months till that answer to that question comes out and goes public. And then God only knows like, and I'm not saying this in regards to ineffective, just using it as a uh, example, but let's say you had a question that had a answer from a band member that was either controversial or could stir some shit up. That band member could be like six or eight months later before someone's like, Hey, you heard that, that fucking thing in a fucking fancy. And they're like, what fucking fancy? When the fuck was this? Because yeah. <laughs> it just takes so long. Like yeah. motherfuckers are getting upset about shit eight months later versus our today world where at any given time you have instant internet beef for anything said ever. Yeah. One thing I was, uh, uh, very in tune with and very uh, one of my favorite parts of in effect the fanzine was putting the news on the inside cover it would always all be like a little intro like a paragraph hey this is issue whatever you know thanks for buying the last one you know like a little intro and like all right here's the news and i would always wait for the entire magazine to be done reviews interviews everything typed out and i would get everybody's phone number I'm like, all for one, give me your phone number in case you have like a seven inch or a split or anything. And I would call them or at the show, like, can I put this in the magazine, the next issue? When's it coming out? And so those old magazines, when I go back and look at them, there's like insane amount of information that was nowhere to be found. Uh, You know, there was no internet. It's like, you know, if you, especially if you didn't live in New York, let's say, and you live, let's say in uh, Oklahoma or anywhere that you know wasn't like a uh, a big scene where everything was being talked about it's like this was like you know it was like it was almost like uh opening up your instagram and you see that you know i don't know like a, a new band has a new record coming out it was like there was like it was a chock full of information with the news part which i really really geeked out on i really liked having like the most up-to-date at the very end of the like the last week before I would go to print, I would be like just like calling everybody, trying to get every squeeze, every little bit of information out from every band possible. So when people would open it up, there would be like this brand spanking news that that would hit them. Hopefully, you know, unless they were friends with these particular bands that I'm talking about. I feel like at that particular time, fanzines were everything to hardcore and the culture in the way that you could find a demo tape. You could hear about a new band in a review. And uh, we've had multiple guests talk about Maximum Rock and Roll and its impact. But I have to wonder if early on, as you were putting out these issues, if you felt like you were were contributing back into your scene uh, and if you had, like, got more excited because you were getting positive feedback. I mean, you know, it's crazy to think that how you said, uh, were you 16 or 17 when you put the first new breed out? I was probably closer to 17. Maybe I started when I was 16, 16 to 17 when new breed came out. Yeah. Yeah. So you're about 18 when you start doing these. And I mean, 
your third fucking issue, I I would just be like, I can't believe, like, if you're 19 years old and you're doing Agnostic Front Breakdown Super Touch, what the yeah. fuck, man? Like, yeah. and and something because I for those listening, I came madly into, in effect, fanzine. I I checked out um, on South Street, which is not unlike. Uh, stuff you have in Queens. There's multiple different record stores in it in like a five block radius. And there was a uh, tons of like old zine categories. Like, oh, you know, these are old zine. People just put them out there. And little by little, you would just pop up and see this shit. And I remember seeing epi- um, issue five and being like, what the fuck is this? Because it was like sheer terror and sick of it all. Two of my favorite bands at the time. And, um, it actually wasn't until your website that I was even aware of what you covered in issues one through four. Mm-hmm. And it has got to be so badass to be a teenager and you're talking or not. Well, I you know, like formally talk, but you're talking like via your fanzine about all these like amazing bands at this height for so many of them. And I wonder, do you feel like you were aware or are you just more caught up in trying to do versus realizing like, Holy shit! This is pretty fucking epic that I'm able to like help these bands out and get the word out, etc. Probably a little of both. It's like uh, some of them. It's like uh, like uh, some of the interview, like the Super Touch one that you brought up. It's like I didn't go to that day to that TV's show planning on interviewing Mark, the singer for Super Touch. He just happened to be walking by, and I, I probably like grabbed his elbow and like, "Hey, I do a fanzine. Can you do an interview?" Uh, and he said yes, and we just I'm like, okay, you want to go? Because I, I started seeing quick that out that the the way to get the people was the the better interviews most of the time would be when you would do like an in person instead of sending the questions by in the mail. So to grab the, the the problem that I had outside of shows was everybody wants to talk to the singer of the band, everybody wants to talk to the guys, the cool guys. Like the, 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 the nobody, not really the drummer, but like the people that are visible. So if I just start interviewing Mark from Super Touch right there, someone's like multiple people are going to walk up and start just ignoring me. doesn't matter who I am. And just, hey, Mark, how's it going? Did you see so-and-so before? Did you know, do you have the, the, the you know, whatever, you know, they were, so they basically would get ruined. So the thing was to like to try to grab them and like kind of whisk them off to the side. Like and, corner you know, them somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So CBGB's opened up a record canteen, which was like perfect. It was absolutely perfect. And uh, because it's like, you know, people would be wanting to hang out outside and it's like you could pull them inside. It wasn't too loud. And then it's like they're away from the crowd. And then it's, you kind of got them captive for a little bit, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And you just start, uh, I believe that time I was just like coming up with just coming up questions off the top of my head. And uh, that was pretty cool that he, said that and uh another one what i got was uh the gorilla biscuits i was like it was kind of like the Fuck same yeah. thing they were just like they were just like like standing around did i get gorilla wait a second yeah you did no. yeah second wait. issue Fuck yeah, I'm, I'm fucking retarded, man. No, I, I, my kid, I'm sorry I said that. <laughs> my kids no, no no you're like you can say whatever the hell you want here i don't care okay okay yeah but uh and i, I and then like then Walter just was like walking by, like and the guy was like, Hey, you want Walter, you want to come in too? Like, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> so canteen again. But uh it was it was like you know, a lot of these were very spontaneous. It's like, you know, it wasn't like uh 
I'll meet you. And after the second band, you know, I have a 15 minute window. It was never like that. It was just like, you know, I would go there, I had my recorder and I would see somebody that wasn't talking to anybody. I would, you know, and it was on my like hit list. I would grab them and ask them and nobody ever said no. Everybody's like, yeah, sure. Cool. And there were all these bands were like really, really cool. So in the first iteration, you end up doing like three before you took a break or was it four before you took a break? Three. I did the, three issues and uh then it was oh, like or, I, I, I wanted to hit you up about that specifically okay so in these first three you kind of went from okay beginner photocopy now you got the printer you got the art and then by the third one i mean this thing could be its own cbgb's flyer it's fucking sick as fuck the yeah. hand drawn logos are on there and me just loving the cultural like preservation this is like the mid-90s fanzine art cover you know and um did you feel any single way like that you were getting acknowledged by your third one for being someone who has a fanzine or because you were limited to new york people it's kind of oh yeah that's chris and he kind of does his thing like what was your did your place Uh, within new york hardcore get known for doing zines or like how did it get received within your scene the the I guess the third one the cover was like it's such a holy shit moment you know it's like that cover Andrew from Stan Proud Andrew Monserrati is a guitar player for that band I don't think he ever did any other hardcore bands after that but uh, he gave me this artwork and he did all these like logos that said shows and all these fonts inside and like the inside thing has like these like spider webs on the corners and I was like this is ridiculous it's like it was such an and then he did the back cover that uh, with like that mosh scene on the back. And it says word up with an exclamation point, And the U looks like an L. So my, everybody, my friends would go, it looks like word LP. And they're like, what's word LP? I'm like, no, it says word <laughs> up. And so every, that would be like an inside joke. But um, yeah, people started noticing it. My whole thing was uh, I would go to shows with a backpack filled with zines. And I was at first, I was very, very timid. I didn't want to anyone to say no to me. So I was like, basically like giving them away. And it's like, I was very sheepish in, in that regard but uh when i started having bands like you know like that third issue is very easy to sell you know I mean, you have agnostic front terminal confusion super touch on it and you know it was much easier to sell and i'm selling them for a dollar even then a dollar was cheap and there was so many people that said they didn't have a dollar that was like another joke amongst my friends i'm like can you imagine all these people that come here and they don't even have a you know, you know they're just basically they're being nice to you and saying no they don't want to buy it but uh it it it, it Yes, I started seeing people and then then I would have, uh, you know, people say, hey, I don't remember particular bands, but sometimes the, you know, not the agnostic fronts of the world, but the, you know, demo bands still in the demo range would go, hey, can you do an interview with us? You know, hey, you know, would you think, would you consider it? You know, so, uh, you know, you, your head would get a little big, like, you know, wow, these bands that I like are coming to me now and they want me to put them in the issues. And I was like, you know, yeah. But uh, so I did start seeing a little recognition in that regards. And but a big thing with me is like I wanted to get them into the record stores. And at first I just got shut down by most of the record stores. They just wouldn't take it. They didn't know the name. And uh, it was hard to get it was hard to get into the record stores, which I felt later on. I saw it was like a game changer in selling them because it's like, you know, stores like Bleaker Bob's and Generation Records could sell you know, like 300 of them in a week because, you know, I mean, they're, they're open like, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. 
and you know they're in the heart of Manhattan, downtown Manhattan. So it was very important for me to get into the bigger record stores, and record stores still then were like a big thing where people would go and just could you know buy everything, you know. So getting some of the record stores in the New York area and having them want to buy it and you know sell it was very important for the sales. Now with fanzines being so like literally stuck in a uh, non-digital term, like there's an analog to it, physical, you had to start getting mail and stuff by your second or third issue. Like yeah, how was yeah. it, how was it like learning to correspond and become like, you know, pen pal, so to speak. And like, how much time did that come once you started getting known for the zine? Uh, yeah, I was always good. I always was a uh, tape trader. Uh, I always like would like mail. I don't know, even like in the metal days, we would like find these advertisements in the back of magazines, like dudes that would be like, there was this dude in Flushing that was into metal and he would have like Metallica Live in Denmark, you know, 90 minutes. And it's a soundboard wow. quality, you know. So it was always into like the, I'm not saying that was the particular one, but like stuff like that, like, you know, some obscure metal show from some weird place, you know, a place that, you know, you're not far away place. So I was always into writing letters and stuff like that. But that as it uh, grew, this fanzine grew, those letters came in more and more. And I would write every single person back. You know, I see some of the letters, like, you know, people go, I still have your letters and I see them. And they, they would write like a long essay and it's like my answer wouldn't match them as far as essay uh, lengthwise, but it's like, you know, it was like telling, I was answering the questions and thanking them for buying the zine and, you know, telling them what the future plans are. Oh, the next issue will have agnostic front and super touch in it, you know, you know, check it out, you know, and just to, you know, keep the, you know, flow going. I'm no, I'm nobody uh, special as far as I don't like have a big head thinking like I'm anybody you know, I'm not like in some big band or anything like that. I'm just like one of the, I'm just like one of many, you know, it's like, I don't look at it. Like I, I'm like too big to answer a letter, you know, and I still don't. It's like, I'll answer emails and stuff like that. If people have questions and uh, yeah, that was a big part. I would get some wild letters. I mean, I remember getting uh, a lot of people in jail would write and uh, jails in other countries. I don't remember which country it was, but I remember a guy from another country said that he got my magazine in jail in some other country and he thought it was awesome. And I was like so blown away wow. that this guy found me that way. And I think <laughs> I just mailed, I think just for free, I just, I, I would just, any, like, and you wrote me and you were like, like some like crazy story. I would always send you like a free magazine. I, I, I was not into, my whole thing was, my whole mantra was just to make my money back. It's like, I didn't, could care less about, I didn't want to lose money. I didn't really want, I always felt a little guilty about making money. So it, to me, a big thing of it was just trying to make the money back. And I never, at first, I try to keep track if I was losing or making, and I knew I was losing because it's like it was, so much money would go into it. I would have no advertising and stuff. And then in the later issues, when I would get more advertising, I, I felt like I broke even. If issues 1 to 12, if you laid them all out, I think maybe I broke even. I don't, if, and if I did go one way or the other, it wasn't too deep of a hit or too much of a profit. But uh, the, the letters are crazy, and uh, the jail ones were always funny. And then, uh, you know, just, we just get some funny letters and it's like, I wish I saved, I saved some of them, some of the better ones. And then it's like, I don't know where the fuck they are at this point. That's pretty fucking awesome. So walk me through what was going on, what happened with the hiatus and where you went. And then like, what was the 
overall impetus when you started back up? Uh, there were a lot of fights at shows. There was like a lot of like gang mentality people. I remember there was a show, show the fight starts, the, the backpack falls off and then a hammer comes out of the backpack and people are swinging hammers. And it was just, and then it's like, uh, there's no CB shows because there's too many fights. Everywhere you would go, it just seems like there would be a fight at every show. Like the band sometimes would keep playing. Sometimes the band would say, yo, cut that out. And, you know, like, yeah, that's whack. You shouldn't fight, you know. But it, regardless, it was like there were fights all the time. It was, it was depressing, you know. And it's like you would see that, you know, less people would, you know, would want to go to shows. And uh, I just got turned off. I was just like, you know, turned off by it. And then when CBs wasn't, doing the shows it wasn't as convenient to go it's like i didn't really know abc no rio and i i don't remember any show that grabbed me that i had to go to the show and i kind of like missed out on on the whole abc no rio thing there were other places that had shows and it just i don't know or just i guess i got jaded a little bit and it's like i just wanted to take a step back you know i would check in with the music but i wasn't going to the shows as much um fast forward a couple of years i think it was four or five years in between issues three and four and shows started popping up again i remember crown of thorns was a band that popped up and i was really excited about it and i was pretty good friends with mike dijon still am and uh i i looked at it, i was like wow that's a good band to like be one of the top bands in a in a new issue and then i was like i got aj again with leeway and they have a new record coming out and i was friends with cold front and i put out me and Nick Benettos from Coldfront put out their CD. Oh uh, yeah, Gas Power we, Records. Yeah, we. I remember sitting in this car. We go. We couldn't. We would always go. What name should we come up with? You know, we were just laughing. We we're going Gas Power Records, like you know, like in a flagellance type of way. We were laughing our asses <laughs> off. Like, and he goes, "We could have like a like a guy with like a fart coming out of his pants." So like, I'm like, I don't know about that, but it's still it was a pretty funny name. And uh, oh, and no redeeming social value was in that issue also. And uh, I had met them, you know, not too long before that. And uh, um, they were very, very, as you know, you, you had them, uh, this is hardcore, they're a, a great band, and a funny band, and a, an amazing band live, uh, especially in the heyday. They just would just do the most insane shit. They, I saw them so many times where they were just doing uh, the way they would dress and act. They're just... It was oh, crazy. It was Mike and when it was Mike and Dean back then, before it was just Dean for yeah. a bit. Yeah. Apparently, apparently, at the the year before, uh, No Redeeming played. This is hardcore. Mike Dixon was at the show for some other band. He told me, and then Joe Hardcore comes up behind me and he goes, "And what are you doing here?" <laughs> apparently, <laughs> that's what that's what you said. And Mike Dixon turned around and he saw it was you. He's like, "Oh," and apparently that started some kind of spark about getting them to play the following year. I still have one of those beach balls that they had. I I told oh, it, I, I, I deflated it and I, I might have wrote down like this is hardcore and the date on it. Not that I'm a memorabilia collector, but I just I'm very good friends uh, with the dudes in the redeeming. Yeah. Anyway, uh uh I don't know, where were we? No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. Um no, this is great. This is great. Um I went to unpack some of what you said. We've had a couple people in New York on the show and they always go. Yeah, there's some problems, and blah, 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 and now we're into 1990. So I like that you actually touched on some of the violence, and not in like to glorify it or condemn it, but it's something like um like the biblical flood. Anywhere that you go, there's a historical record of flood. Anywhere you go, at a certain point in the late 80s, violence really changed the tone of New York hardcore. So I appreciate you just being 
like, hey, you know, this wasn't my bag. And I know the ABC No Rio band specifically, like a lot of people who were CB's regulars became Amy ABC No Rio guys. Yeah. Because of the lack of CB shows and the violence and then the different vibe with ABC. So I just wanted to like note and appreciate that you actually took the time to say that because a lot of people say, oh, no, no, and they just skip right over that part. But it's a huge, it's a huge changing point for New York hardcore. Now, it's one of those times in my life where I think back to that time period. It's like, I don't really have a great recollection of what I was actually doing. It's like, I'm like, well, what was I doing? You know, like, as far as where was I hanging out? Like, what were my friends doing? What, you know, I wasn't like, uh, you know, I wasn't married with kids, you know, I was still, let's say, so 90, I'm 20 years old in 1990. What, uh, no, third. How old am I? Yeah. 20 years old. I'm like, what the fuck? What the fuck am I doing? What am I, what am I doing on the weekends if I'm not going to CBGBs? I mean, we would go there. I remember we saw 24-7 spies at CB's uh Super Bowl, the Super Bowl that the 49ers came back and beat the Bengals. It was like a and we get home and everybody's like, Did you see the game? And I'm like, No, I was at some 24-7 spies. I don't even know who opened up, but uh we were like laughing that 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 not that I was like, you know. A fan of either of those teams but everybody has some kind of party for the super bowl and you know you know hang out it's like a social thing even back then you know but i went to a show i like 24 7 spies but i wasn't like a huge fan but i just decided to go to that instead of watching the super bowl at some party uh but uh yeah other than that i don't know what, what was i doing in that at that time i'd like to get more specific with you and tell you you know what? Oh, was going it's just, on. I just like the I just like the idea that you brought it up because sometimes it's get yada 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 over, and okay. so you end up jumping out with an insane issue. And one of the coolest things about the return issue is that it is a Chris Bonato's art like cover, which became like iconic for that time. Or was that not Chris at the time who drew that? Yeah, it was it Chris like, Bonato. That's what it was. Chris Bonato's. Yeah, and I mean, everyone listening who's an EGH Randall, like you know, can remember all the art, and especially at that time frame, Castle Heights, all the Queens bands. Chris's art was so fucking iconic, and uh, I'm a Cold Front super fan. You can ask uh, anyone. Poor Nick B. I used to call him when I was 16 years old and ask him to come play shows. Poor guy. Uh, I did. <laughs> I got to see uh, Manball Breakdown when Breakdown first popped back up again in the mid-90s with Dijon and Coldfront in a town just like literally like two blocks from the edge of the city at the very end of the train tracks. And demo tapes I have, 7-inch have. I bought the CD from you, ordered it, had to have it. And so I just love that you guys rocked out with Coldfront just because like to me that was like one of the sickest unks. And actually this week there was a band uh, called Cold Front that was going to come out. And I'm like, hey, you don't like Queen's Cold Front? And they're like, I didn't know there was one. We'll see if they're going to uh-huh. do it. But <laughs> so how did zine culture change in that time off? And what did you do differently as you started rolling in with the newer issues? Because the issues, they didn't have, um, it wasn't negative, but they had a more uniformity to the the way that they looked, you know? And I mean, some of these, some of these issues, like I, I still number seven, I remember seeing in New Jersey and being like, what the fuck and buying it and just being so psyched. Cause you just covered darks and NYC, which is a band you didn't see a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. um, 
in all these episodes as you're going along, I, I, I say episodes because of fucking podcast, but um, in all these issues, you know, you're just covering so many vital bands. I mean, there's that iconic Freddie Manball picture in the one cover. And I mean, towards the end, you started getting like, like, um, I don't want to get too far, but you know, basically as you grew as a zine coming back, there was a really clean, crisp, pro look to in effect. And I wanted to kind of get your contrast and comparison to when you came back and how you ran your zine a little differently from the very beginning. Okay. Uh, issue four was very much like issue three uh, with that. It was printed the same way or done on a typewriter. You know, I put the p- pictures on the page where I wanted it, made a stencil line, a pencil line where the logo was going to be. So issue four didn't really have much of a change as far as the look, but of course, Chris did that cover, you know, another crazy cover where you just like have to stare at it and look at it to like notice different things. And he did lots of fonts and graffiti logos on the inside to give it that New York city type of feel to it. Uh, so five was sick of it all. Six had Murphy's law. And those were still, again, they were like, kind of like, you know, they would have like little goofy things that I would find. I remember there was like a, a ruler about like, you know, like, like a little ruler that they would give out like elementary schools and said like, don't do drugs or something like that. And I remember, Oh, that looks pretty funny. There's a kid kicking a soccer ball, whatever it was on there. And I would just put like these stupid little things like for comedy effects and in, inside in certain parts of the thing. But uh, it wasn't really till issue, even the maximum penalty set is uh, issue eight with shelter on the cover. I got a glossy cover uh, done. And uh, that was, and then I, that's when we switched over to newsprint on that one. Also, we figured out that if uh, we got it done on newsprint, you can get it printed a lot cheaper, get a lot more, print it up for cheaper price. And in essence, you can just keep selling it at a low price and just get more out there. Uh, but even that issue was still done on a typewriter. It wasn't until issue, let's see, uh, nine, 10, not, nine was mad ball, 10, 10 or 11. It wasn't even until the very end when I met my old girlfriend that uh, was like from the Seattle area. And she was very well versed with uh, using a Macintosh. And we bought a, uh, when we uh, moved in together, we got a computer hookup system and she was doing the layout. And I was like, it just took a, a huge load off my plate as far as uh, like what I had to do. Cause she was like, we would sit there and I'm like, all right, let's put this here. She made uh, just for the record, her name is Gina B. She hears this. She was like a big part of the later issues. And uh she helped uh, the layout. It was it, the layout looked really good. It, was, it went, you know, because we were doing a typewriter the whole time, you know, the regular standard. But this made it. It still had the realness of the bands that were interviewed and the questions and all that stuff. It was all the same content, but the look still held on to like the DIY fanzine look, but it kind of upgraded in a way with the layout being a lot cleaner and sharper. And then we throw in more graffiti artwork and things like that to still give it like the best of both worlds. You know what I mean? I find that there happens to be few fanzines that last a very long time. So when I look at the timeline where you come out with the first three at like a perfect time in New York hardcore, and then the documentation specifically for some of these bands, like, you know, you you were talking about still suit and some bands that 
didn't get a lot of coverage in the larger play that would reach beyond New York. And obviously, as you kind of described, you were still mostly New York hardcore focused. So you had stuff like powerhouse and, you know, even though shelters from New York, you know, they're a little bit beyond that. I loved and still respect the focus that in effect gave to New York hardcore and the specific touch. And it's felt in the interviews and it feels more like, a, like when you read them, like that you had already some camaraderie or interactions with these people when you do these interviews and you read them. And that just stuck with me as a fan of the zine from the outset. Thank you. Uh, yeah. It's like, as, as you go along, it's like, you just, it's like how you do with your festival. It's like, you know, you might know, you might take a chance on a band that's, you know, that you don't know and that you fly them in or that fly them in, but they fly in from wherever. And next thing you know, you're like, wow, these were really cool dudes and people like them. And next, you know, you just gained another, uh, another ally in the Joe hardcore uh, realm. And it was kind of like the same thing with the band. It's like, let's say it starts off with a review. I really like the demo and I'll buy it and I'll review it. And then they're like, Hey, we want to buy the magazine. Cause that issue, cause we're, you reviewed our demo and like, Hey, my name is Chris and hey, my name is Joe. And next thing you know, you start talking to them and the band grows the bands, you know, a lot of the, these bands that had little, you know, just a, a demo would graduate. It was just, you know, so how it is, is bands would spring up all over the place and then they would just grow. And then it's like, you would kind of catch them at the ground level. And as they grew, you knew them from the ground level. And now it's to the point where people want to know more about them. So let's put them in an interview. When you were doing these uh, zines, did you have any kind of, uh, not competition, but were you looking at the insane amount of zines that were coming out at the time? I mean, at the time, too damn hype. Uh, met he had all that before it became cord there was just any show you could go to at least in our area in the tri-state if you were outside a show and didn't get bullied by two or three zinesters trying to get you a dollar or two for their zine like you weren't at the right show were you influenced at all by that kind of stuff or you just kind of stay in your lane and just focused on what you were uh conceptually trying to put together for your own fanzine uh outside of guillotine i don't think there were like long running ones that like just concentrated mostly on New York. Um, I loved, I would go to, there was another Z, there was a zine store called uh, C here. That was like in that same, you know, area downtown. I think they were on East street, uh, kind of like near St. Mark's and they, you would go in there. You would just not know a particular Z. You would just find zines. You would find every kind of fanzine in these stores and you just buy them. And I would eat these up and I would look at how they did. Schism Zine was a one that had a influence on me because they had like a really cool look. They had some bands. I, I like finding a fanzine where it's a band you're interested in and you don't really know much about them. And then you read it and you're like, wow, I really want to find out more, check this band out more. Uh, there was another one from Connecticut called Back to Back. Uh, Hardware from New Jersey was one. Oh yeah. I thought Hardware came out like the same time as me, but it's like after I got the book, from Shining Life Press, who's now putting the Ineffect book out, uh, I realized that we didn't line up right away until, like, you know, timeline-wise, you know. But, uh, yeah, uh, Brett was a great, is a, is a great dude. And I really liked, I, I liked the way they put, the way Hardware de uh, delivered the information in the, the, in the interviews and the reviews. It's, it, it was, I really liked Hardware. Uh, but, yeah, so I was definitely influenced by other zines around me. 
but as far as I kind of uh, to answer your question, I kind of stayed in my lane. I was like, I'm like focusing on New York hardcore, and there's so many. It was like kind of like in my mind, I'd be like, there's so many more bands. You said Still Suit and Dark Side, and uh, but there, there there was like this long list that I felt like I could never get to all of them. And by the time I do get to all of them, there'll be ten more that I want to add to the list. So it was it just seemed like this endless line of bands, and it would never run out. That's the way it seemed. So it's like, I was like, let me just keep sticking to New York. And then that you brought Powerhouse up. It was around then that I started going, you know, I started, I felt like at that point, I started maybe running out of bands from New York that I really, really wanted to, to get in. And then I started noticing more outside of New York. And Powerhouse, the way they played was very New York, hardcore centric. And uh, I think they might you have been the first you- band. You caught them. Um, did you catch them when they came to Long Island at that time? Uh, I, I think we were hanging out at uh, Coney Island High on uh, St. Mark's. And, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. That's where they I, came out on that East Coast shot. Yeah. And uh, they had a guy who did a zine that was friends with them called Colby Buzzle. Did a breakout. Yeah. Zine. Breakout records and breakout fanzine. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, just became friends with him. It was just like, again, it was just like people come, you know, it's probably the same story with you. It's like, you know, and then it became, you know, he would come every, you know, I ran into him a bunch of times You become friends with them. And then it's like, you just have another connection. And next thing you turn around, it's like, you know, you know, you know, let me call this band to see like when their next record is coming out to put in the news part of the magazine. It's just, again, it's like that web that I was talking about. Like we just, meet someone and you get good interaction and you get their contact information. And if you need for someone like me, who does a fanzine, you, you need information. So you have the contact, you just call them or nowadays email them and say, Hey, what's up with that uh, new record that's coming out? You know, you know, and then you ask them questions about it. And next thing you know, you have either like a little news piece or a full blown interview. And, uh, that's how basically how the things generate and get started. That's how like the spark starts and turns into articles and interviews. Now, we, I want to get onto the book, but I wanted to first have you explain what was the decision process to stop putting out in effect. Uh, after the 12th issue or yes. before, after the third, uh, after the 12th issue, uh the girl gina was talking about my old girlfriend it's like we broke up we were living together she knew how important it was to me she goes i'll do one final issue with you like a 13th issue and uh she was like making these suggestions about like you know what she felt that i could turn in effect into like a real job like have like a office space and like a staff and i was like no 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 that's not not really what i want to do anyway i was burnt out it's like you were talking about writing letters and everything. I answered all the letters. It was like distro. Once you had the last issue, uh, issue 12, I made 10,000 copies and wow. I sold all 10,000 copies. And it's like, I didn't have like, like a tower records. I could say was a distributor, but tower records only took like 200 copies. These were all sold like out of the trunk of my car. I would get in my car when it, it took forever to sell them. And it was just like a constant rotation. I was just so burnt out. Uh, I can't, it's the, the amount of time that I put into it. I can't believe when I think back, like I do the, the website now and it's like nowhere near the amount of time that I put in. It was like a, it was like a second job, maybe four or five hours a day. And I love doing it. But after a while, it was just, just too much. It was just like the cycle just came to an end. And it was like, it's, 
it wasn't like a band when you have four or five guys in the band and like hopefully like you have two or three guys who are like the the grunts who go do all the like calling people to get shows and what not i was pretty much doing everything like you know all the heavy lifting as far as hitting up the record stores and then chasing the record stores down for the money. Cause the record stores would mostly not pay you right away. They would take a hundred magazines from you and give you a piece of paper, like an IOU come back when we sell these all, then we'll give you the money. So then you're yeah, consignment. And then you had yeah. dish rows that would take it. And you had to chase them for money. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually, for that 13th issue, I actually had like a thing with uh, that. I was putting together an article where I actually secretly was mailing, ordering things from bands and like walking down how long it took them to send send stuff back like and record labels and bands and stuff like that uh especially ones that have maybe had bad reputations of like ripping people off but that was one of the things i also had a uh a seven seconds interview i had uh here's another cool fact uh uh i worked for united airlines and did customer sir i was a gate agent at LaGuardia airport for a bunch of years so i got like free flight benefits uh, the band Good Clean Fun lived in D.C. And I actually got on a plane and flew to D.C. They picked me up in their band's van and they drove us, drove me to a vegetarian restaurant where we did the interview. They drove me back like an hour later to the airport and I was back in my house. Like, I don't know, the whole thing round trip was like four hours long. And uh, wow. a, a cool perk of working there because maybe I think the flight to D.C. that comes out of my paycheck, it might have been like 10 bucks each way. And uh, they, they, but talking to them on the phone, they're like, you're going to fly from New York to Washington to interview us? I'm like, yeah, sure. It's like, you know, it's, it's dirt cheap. I can do it like, you know, in a couple hours. Um, yeah, so that was another, it was good, clean, fun, seven seconds, did an interview. That thing with mailing the, uh, you know, testing the distros and the record labels, if they were mailing stuff back quick, that was another one, didn't really materialize. And then... Uh, I had flown to Puerto Rico. Uh, I brought Indecision to Puerto Rico with this band from Puerto Rico called Advertencia. And uh, I was friends with the singer for Advertencia. And uh, the second time I went to Puerto Rico just to hang out with him, he was like, you know, do you think you can get a New York band to come down here? And uh, we just, we started talking to Indecision on AOL Instant Messenger. I was like, hold on, let me get Justin from Indecision. He's probably signed on. He goes, he's always signed on. So I just send them a message. I go, hey, I'm in Puerto Rico. Do you guys want to play down here? This guy's willing to buy your plane tickets and you know, we'll work something out. So you guys, you know, he'll he totally makes his money back. Yeah, sure, we'll come down. All right, yeah. This guy's name was Igor. I'm like, yeah, they'll come, they'll play. So uh that was another like the tour diary that I did for the indecision advertencia tour was another article for this issue 13 that never came out. But the the seven seconds in the advertencia indecision thing ended up on the in effect hardcore website is they're buried somewhere in the archives. Well, that's one of the coolest things is that you did take a little time back off and jumped into the web space. And I've always appreciated the work you've done promoting this hardcore. And like you it touched on, you know, being able to put uh, an article up or a write up or an interview versus transcribing and setting and reusing a fucking typewriter and all this shit. I'm glad that you figured out a way to continue doing the stuff that you liked, but in a faster format that it wouldn't impede in every moment of your goddamn waking life, you know? Yeah, I kind of miss those. There's just times where it's like I I kind of want to put out a, a special edition zine, you know, but it's like and then I start thinking about how much time it's gonna be in the 
finding people to buy it and record stores and going to the post office a hundred times, you know, for each, you know, you know, each order, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just like, it's insane. I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, single 20 years old living in my mom's house anymore, you know? So it's like those kind of things. I, I feel like with the technology that's out today, if I had that back then, I could just crush everything. You know, it's like, it just run wild. It's like, I would have been maybe, who knows, maybe I would have been able to turn it into like a, uh, a full-time thing. Cause it's like, it's so easy to attain contacts, information, get, get people to help you write. It's like almost anything you, you need to create a zine. You can just find it. You know, like you find people that are willing to help you just by putting a post up, you know? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's the beauty of the speed of the internet. Now, we've talked about this a couple times, and for those listening, I had a different episode I was going to air, but I have to have this out because Chris hits me up. He's like, hey, by the way, <laughs> it's finally coming out. So explain what's going on with the zine, the book, and I mean, I, I'll let you go from here just because I'm so fucking excited about this coming out. All right. So uh, John uh, does Shining Light Press. They're in the D.C. area. Uh, they came to me, they were going to put out this, uh, it initially went back. We had someone else that was going to put the book out. We had, uh, Kevin from SFT records contact me probably like in 09 and he wanted to put out, he had the idea. It was, uh, to put the book out, uh, that all the fanzines in one book. And, uh, I guess he got busy with his, you know, uh, other stuff and it just didn't materialize. And then I got John had put out the hardware book the hardware fanzine book, John from Shining Light Press. So I kind of brought John in and asked, and with Kevin, we were doing like a three-way email where could John kind of take over the, you know, the, the production of it. And Kevin was cool with that. And Kevin mailed him all the stuff to John and John just started running with it. And he's just would start sending me like samples of, you know, what we were working on. And basically what it is, is it's 722 page book. It has, there's a hundred hard covers and 800 soft covers for the first run. And uh, it'll come with uh, a special sticker, like some in effect sticker. That's going to be some variation of uh, with the artwork that's within the contained within the book. And uh, so it's every issue, every ad, every interview, every review from issue one to issue 12. So basically anything that was in there is in the book and add ons are in the book are, I wrote introductions to each issue. So issue one talks about how uh, I write something up about how um, the idea of coming from new breed fanzine and, and, and leading into how I got the interviews done, having Nick Benettos get the interview questions over to the outburst and leeway and then each issue. And it's like, there's a lot of backstories that I think are really interesting to me because I've read these issues inside out since they came out, each one of them came out. I've, I you know, did the interviews, I read them a million times, but it was really almost exciting to actually take these stories that I've always told my close friends for years. I'm like, hey, do you know about that breakdown interview and how that happened? And it's like that craziness that was outside of CVs with the, the dudes from the homeless shelter, the homeless hotel, whatever it is, a hotel upstairs. And just these, all these little backstories, like there was a down low interview who are put out a very underrated CD a few years back. Well, back then, a lot of years back, uh, Wall of Anger. And I did an interview with them outside. It was just another mayhemic interview where 
Rat Bones ends up in it and passerbys are in the interview. And I put everybody's responses. It was just like mother jokes. And it was just like, it was so like, if you like a band, uh, let's say like a Metallica band, it would be such an unprofessional interview. But for this band, it was like hilarious. And it was like, I, I'll read it and I'll just start cracking up laughing. I can't believe they said that in an interview, but it is what it is. And it was, it's a, a moment caught in time. I didn't ask uh, the best questions every time, but sometimes I got amazing answers, even though it wasn't a great question. Uh, what else is in it? There's extras in the book too. We got a couple of photos. Uh, there were some pages that needed to be filled up and we got Carl Gunhouse photos. We got oh, photos awesome. from, from BJ Pappas gave us some photos and Ken Salerno gave us some photos also. So we're oh, very yeah. grateful and thankful to those three people for letting us use the photos. Uh, all three of them. BJ was amazing, always amazing. But I needed to focus. Uh, doing a fanzine back in in the 88, 89, there was very few photographers or photographers that had quality photos. And she was always someone that would come up with a photo whenever I needed, never asked for payment. Just, just give me a photo credit. I appreciate it. Ken Salerno. Uh, I don't know if I used when I what issues I had photos in with him, but... Uh, he was, I, I met him at one of your, this is hardcore, the first hardcore, this is hardcore that I went to and uh, very, very nice guy. And oh, uh, he's a I, sweetheart. Oh, definitely. Uh, and that was the only time I met him, but I correspond with him by email and I feel like I'm friends with like, you know, I only met him that one time and I feel like I have like a, a great connection with the guy. I really like the guy. And, uh, and then call Gunhouses who was a huge supplier of photos, like quality photos for me in the nineties, like the issues, you know, probably four, I don't know, probably to the last issue. Carl was a very, he's not like a talked about photographer, like in the, <coughs> excuse me. And that uh, like, you know, not like the, the, the biggest names, but he's, to me, he's like, he's a very distinct style and the way he takes his photos. When I see his photos, like so you could almost like hold one up to me and I, I know it's one of Carl's photos most of the time. I would say I would there's, a, there's a distinct look to Carl. There's yes. definitely a distinct look. Yeah. Um so it's 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 cool. It's like it's got uh we got the uh this guy Sven who lives in Croatia did the cover artwork. It's got the current in effect granny and a newsstand. She's got a machine gun, there's a dog pissing on the newsstand, it's like a wraparound cover where the back cover is like the front cover leads into the back cover and on the spine has like this rat sitting on a garbage can. And it just, it just has that, uh, that, uh, that look, you know, like that, that kind of like city look to it. And it says in effect in red letters on the cover. Now we're going to go through a couple of quick ones. I know uh, this started late and I know you got shit going on first looking back. What was your biggest regret? looking at back and um whether it was the first phase or second phase just involved with the zine wow uh i don't know i don't really have too many regrets i remember uh, uh the band silent majority i got turned on to very late and uh, i've never interviewed them and i always wanted to have them in i kind of um they were like a bucket list band i guess because i got turned on to them late and i fucking loved their records they were so good i'm actually trying to work with this singer Tommy to get an interview up on the uh, in effect website currently. Uh, it's been, it's been a slow go so far. Uh, not too many, not too many. I'm trying to think like, I kind of just, I, I did things clean, you know, I did, I, I didn't, you know, I, I never really like screw anybody over or 
I always try to do the right thing. So it's like, I don't have like regrets where, man, I fucked that up or not, not too many. I can't really think of anything that looks like a glaring regret, except for maybe I should have interviewed this band or that band or, but there's not even too many of those, you know? When you look back, what do you think is your most fond memory of uh, releasing a fanzine? Uh, fond memory. I mean, there's, there's lots of like, medium to like you know there's no like uh, i don't know it's just like people people still talk about it and they like it and it's like you know when they the pre-order has gone up on shining life for this and getting messages from people that are like really really excited and to me it's like you know these are things that i've read a million times and it's not as exciting to me because it's like you know you know it's like a band that's like has a song or that they played a billion times it's you know it might be someone who just heard it's you know, or haven't heard it a million times, like absolute favorite song, but that band, maybe they've played it so many times they're tired of it. Um, but uh, I just, I, I'm just like, kind of like, I, again, it's like what I was saying before. It's like, I don't look like, a, I don't feel like I'm anybody special. I'm just some guy who just goes ask questions and people really like it. And so I guess like, I feel grateful and thankful that people give a shit about it, like, you know, all these years later. And then it's like, I see with the website, it's like, I kind of have like an older, obviously an older crowd of people, like probably like 30 plus. And they, they just, they care. It's like, they, they, you know, the people that contact me really, you know, put out an article or whatnot, they get into it and they still care. And it's like, I guess the feeling that uh, the people like what I'm doing, I guess that's like a, a, a fond memory of sorts, but uh, yeah, the fact that it's appreciated, I guess, but uh just tons of stories. It's like, you know, I think of shows that don't have anything to do whether I did a fanzine or not. I, I think back what hardcore has done as far in my life, as far as like experiences go and, uh, you know, shaping who myself and my friends and like that we're all like, you know, pushing 50 or late forties. And we still have these stories. Do you remember the time we were on the train and we ran into so-and-so I mean, we would see people on the trains a lot, you know, it's like just going to shows. We ran into Tony Scaglione from Whiplash and he was playing in Slayer at the time. And uh, one of those shows on the train going to Lamore and he was pissed drunk and he was pissing in between the train cars and there was nobody on the train, like a picture, one of those like warrior style graffiti covered trains. And it's like, and he comes and sits down and we're like, yo, you're the dude that's playing in Slayer. He's like, yeah. I go, we like Whiplash. We love Whiplash. And we just started talking to this dude and, and I'm, I'm friends with him now on social media. He lives in the South somewhere, but just, you know, meeting people and talking to them and just getting to know them. And it's just cool. But it's like these crazy stories that we have from going to shows. Again, it doesn't necessarily have to be from doing a fanzine and just that we had some really, really cool experiences and to think back on. Looking back on all this, what do you think out of the stuff that you've covered in the fanzine is one of the bands that you feel got overlooked in time? Uh, uh, the first issue, like Fit of, Fit of Anger, I thought it was a really, really good band. And it's like, I still listen to like the, I'll put the demo songs on. And I mean, I'm, I'm obviously biased because I thought of the band name. They were like my best friends growing up. And uh, they were, they were a really, really good demo band. And it's just for some reason, it's like, I felt like, you know, they should have got, gotten more play. Uh, Terminal Confusion and Issue 3 was another band that put out two, two really, really good demos. The first one wasn't as recorded as good as the second one. 
the second one, the other side, that was an amazing demo. And that kind of, Freddie Alva kind of gives them, uh, uh, gives them props for, you know, and puts them, uh, gives them credit. But uh, they were a really good band also, but this never, they never hit the mark as far as like popularity, like, you know, big, big popularity, but they were a very solid band. Uh, I don't know. It's like, what do you really define as, uh, you know, like, you know, what are your definitions? It's like, you know, No Redeeming Social Value is in my mind, one of my favorite hardcore bands. But, uh, I mean, are they like, you know, what, like, you know, there's all levels of like where bands are at overall let's say as far as popularity i mean to me they're like one of my most popular favorite bands but i don't know where they fit in is that does every kid into hardcore know who no redeeming social value is i would hope so but i don't I know they fit in. I, I feel that there's no like direct one answer they give that would be right or wrong in the scenario but i i do realize that you can gauge pretty good that there's just some bands that you have so much promise, but for whatever purpose or reason, they just don't get further than we had hoped. And I think that when we look at fanzines, which is something that was absolutely pivotal in changing me from being a long hair who just read uh, metal magazines to a hardcore kid, was that you could read a fanzine from two or three years ago and get excited about a band just, just like listening to uh, or reading a show review or reading an interview with the band or just like reading, you know, um, a review of the record. And I find that in effect, because it had two separate lives and it kind of encompassed the best of two amazing moments in New York hardcore did a great job of like, um, a Polaroid snapshot in words or, um, snapshot in words, what hardcore and New York hardcore specifically was doing. And so, it's inevitable that there'll be some bands that like, a, you know, like I thought still suit and quite a few bands. I mean, you brought up silent majority. There's tons of bands that you've covered that. I mean, to me, I'll tell you again, Cole front, you know, one of Mike DeJean's most unsung bands, like just absolutely fantastic. There's just, you know, even darks and NYC. I, I feel like people take them for a miss and don't realize like the, just the absolute insanity that Richie O'Brien is and, with Blake and all that, it's it's fucking fantastic. I don't know, like I a think, band like uh, a, a band like Fahrenheit four five one is like a was a really really good band, and like I feel like in my scene in New York they were a huge, a huge deal. But I don't know what their effect was in I don't know. Again, let's go back to Oklahoma. I'm picking on Oklahoma, but you know what I mean. It's like to me they were a really big band, and it's like I was like glad I was like so glad that they wanted to do an interview with me. So it's like. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't know. It's like, I guess it's like, where do it's like, you might look at Fahrenheit 451 one way, and then I might look at them because I saw a particular show or a group of shows where it's like just insane and an insane show. You know what I mean? And maybe like another person who might live in Connecticut caught them on a show where the, you know, the, the, the other support bands might not have been as popular. You know, it wasn't just as good a show. So to me, Fahrenheit 451 was a really big band. So it goes again to how do you uh where how do you rank the bands i guess you know and like in this no i mean I, for me thing. for me it's more or less like when i look at a band like fahrenheit the thought of it is a great example like kind of like one of those uh these kids memes where like they say like tell me you're from like you know say like tell me you're from 1997 hardcore without telling me you're from 1990 and it if if you bop that 
thought of its EP, then you're from the 97 hardcore, you know, like everyone loved yeah. that motherfucker. Yeah. Like, I, I've, I've seen him in front of a hundred people and I've seen him in front of an, over a thousand. So, you know, they definitely had a, a, a growth. And I think, you know, something that we talk about a lot on the show is just that hardcore being in its over now we're into our fifth decade of of hardcore music at some point not everybody's going to be able to absorb it all and give it the same level of respect but the one thing i'll say and um not to completely close this out but that in effect did a great job of giving people a perspective that you know at the same time where the big, the big bands, you know, Agnostic Front came back. Pure Terror was breaking up. H2O was blowing up. VOD was blowing up. Madball was on fire. You were still covering so many other things. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say not, sorry to avoid, um, ignore Sigmatol as well. Like in that, in that 90s era of in effect, there were just so much going on. And I feel from a young teenage Joe who was reading your fanzine to catch up on these lesser known New York hardcore, then you did a great job of serving everyone. Thank you. I, I really, I really, really enjoyed covering the smaller bands and with that feeling that this interview might boost them into another, into the next, whatever the next level was. Going back to No Redeeming Social Value, they told me early on after the interview and issue four came out that they were getting letters that specifically said, I read about you in in effect. And that, was one of my things that like, whoa, that's, that's awesome that this thing actually helped them gain a fan who knows how many others, but uh, that feeling is something that drove me. And I loved helping smaller bands and bands on the way up. And especially if they were cool people, you know, it's like if they were really cool and, you know, you really wanted to help them out, like no redeeming was like a perfect example of that. So for young people listening, which there are plenty of now you're going to go and do what I did. And you're going to pre-order the fucking book. You're going to get it on hardcover and you're going to learn. I, I, as I get older and have to, I don't collect records. I sold what collection I had, which was never like bold first pressing green vinyl, none of that shit, but the records that mattered to me in 2005, I had to sell a lot of them. So I have a weird emotion to them. Like now I have some records I never thought I'd have because they were repressed. And I, I look forward to putting a refrain on a wall and I'll never play them, but I just love them. But what I do buy a lot of is hardcore books. And so when you sent me that message, it was like, Hey, by the way, this is going up for pre-sale. Huh. I'm, I'm like, I, I literally, you know, um, I don't think I go two or three months without looking for a book or finding an old book or buying a new book on hardcore and punk rock. And I'm just so excited for younger folks who are absolutely fucking obsessed with hardcore, especially New York hardcore. And now they have access to all this shit that you wrote in one fucking thing. And just for those listening, you can also check out in effect hardcore.com, which has served this as hardcore um, they've been on site for so many years. There's just so many cool things that you've done. And I just appreciate you and what you've done and the reasons why you did it. Like you said, there were plenty of fancies. I, I mean, you know, I, I worked very shortly at Cord magazine towards the end. Like there was multiple hardcore fanzines that were making people live in, but I love that you're like, ah, I just like doing it. 
And so yeah, I yeah. love the idea that we're now going to have a physical like anthology of fucking everything. It's fucking awesome, man. Thank you. Thank um, you. Shout out to how you get it, when you get it, and how people can get in touch with you. And I appreciate your time. I appreciate the patience trying to get us this one in so quickly. And good luck, man. And I hope that we hear more from you. And in, in effect, and I would love to see a new in effect zine one time. It'd be so what the fuck. It'd be awesome. <laughs> All right. Maybe we'll make it happen, Joe. Joe, you do Ooh. a great job. But I, I, every time I ever talk to you on the phone, it's, it's only a couple of times. Uh, you have just have a great a great personality and a way to just keep the conversation going. Just flows, man. You, do, you should do uh, you should do more of these podcasts. <laughs> Ryan, trying to do one every week. It's uh, the hardest thing I think that, and I think a medium like this Dean again. I really like the idea of a snapshot moment for a band with podcasts. I hear two things. Oh, let's do it in person. It'll be more natural. And I'm like, a conversation is a conversation. You know, like if, if you can speak and you can react and you can listen, you're going to have a good conversation. And I think with the digital interfaces, we're able to sit in our own houses and relax and not be nervous or having to worry about eye contact or worry about what we're wearing. And I think there's a level that people don't see. So, I appreciate the compliment and I, I just really appreciate you. Um, once again, shout out where to buy the book, where to go to your website, how to contact you and just thank you again. All right, Joe. You need all that information. Just like, like, you know, like whatever.com I, I'm going to link it no matter, unless you want me, I can just okay. link it on our, our site. Like, you know, no, usually so we say it. I'm not actually sure if, the people saying it, if people actually go ahead and link it, but I always uh, sign off with like, Hey, if you want to promote, but if you're like, if you don't want to pro, Hey, fuck it, man, no big deal. I'll just put it on the links. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, www.ineffecthardcore.com. There'll be an update over the weekend. They'll have all the information with links to the shining life press uh, uh, website, which has the pre-orders. And uh, like I said, you know, it has uh uh, 100 hardcover, 800 softcover as the first run. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know if, if, those, if those will sell or if there'll be multiple runs. Uh, we'll see. Hopefully it does well. I mean, the response that I got from just telling people, mostly like a lot, there was so many responses like your, your own where it was just like, I think you wrote, holy shit, you know, something along those lines uh, as your response back to me. And I've gotten a lot of that and hopefully, uh, old heads that are still around like you want to check it out you know i think no. i think uh if you like the zines and you were missing one or two of the zines or a couple of the issues like for me issue one i don't even i don't even know if i have an original i have like piecemeal copy some you know of it i have all the pages but i don't even think the staples were in it anymore i have one of each copy somewhere in a in a in a you know you know in a container but uh it took me a while to put everything together, you know, as far as finding everything. Uh, I got boxes and boxes of photos and memorabilia as far as like show flyers and stuff like that. And it was like a, a really a, a big task to try to dig everything up and then get little extras thrown in the book here and there. There's a lot of yeah. photos. Uh, I forgot to mention also, there's like photos of 
myself and my friends just like, you know, going to shows and things along those lines. The, the, the book has been a long process in the making. So it's like, um, you know, there's like things that I, you know, may have like passed over or missed for one reason or another. Uh, but uh, it's, it's pretty complete. It has every page from every issue. So just in that regard, but the extras are going to be really cool too. No, nah, man, this sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, I pre-ordered. I want everybody to pre-order. Chris, thank you for your time. Thank you for all the effort and the, the immersion into hardcore to the point where you were like, I just want to tell everybody about it and get excited. And looking at the span of time that you put into the fanzine. And I love that you were just trying to amplify and promote these awesome bands and, I can't wait to see this, man. It's going to be fucking fantastic. Thank and you. I want to, I'll I want to thank it. you too. Thank you too for the, you know, the festivals. Those, the, I don't know how many I've been to since 2012 was the first one I went to. And uh, there's some of the most memorable shows, memorable sets, bands that I was not like super, super keyed in on. I became super keyed in on because of this is hardcore. And I want to thank you also for the work that you do. No, nah, man. Thank you. Like I said, uh, a teenage Joe hardcore was heavily influenced by fanzines and in effect had a huge impact on how I viewed New York hardcore. And anyone who listens to the last 40 odd podcast knows that this is, we end up talking a lot about New York hardcore on there because of it. So it comes back to you as well, my friend, thank you. And we will make sure to tell everybody often to get their, their book and where to get it from and go to our link at TIACpodcast.com. Thank you, Joe. Well, there we have it. Another episode. It's cool that we got to crank this one out. I really love when we have the opportunity to kind of shed some light. And if you notice, this one moved linearly faster. We had some link-up issues and started very late into the night. And he had a limited schedule to start with. So we did the best with the timeline for what we had on us. I hope you enjoyed his story. Chris is a terrific guy. The fanzine's incredible. The fact it's going to come out all as an anthology just makes me so psyched. I love hardcore punk books. Whether they're storytelling, whether they're documentaries, whether they're fucking anything. You read it. Sometimes people are very specific and they're trying to get you know, the exacts and other people are a little bit more flowery and they tell it for their perspective. We've talked about a couple of different books on the show and I just implore younger people to check out some of these hardcore books. If nothing else, start at Revelation Distro just because they carry a lot of them in one spot and start checking some shit out. Read about this motherfucking shit. Thanks to Chris for being on the show. Check out TIHCpodcast.com for the links and I'll check you out next week. Support your local fucking shows. Support your local fucking promoter. If you see a show posted, retweet, share. Let other people know. Be positive. The world's opening back up, and it's time we kick some ass and actually supported this shit instead of talking shit on the internet and nitpicking with each other. Love yous. Can't wait to hear from you next week. Goodbye.